This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Susanna, Caleb, Amara, Sam, and Caleb. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's get started with our serious questions. This week, we have questions from Susanna and from Caleb. And since I'll be answering questions from two Calebs in this episode, I want to start distinguishing between them. So our question in our serious question segment is going to be coming from Caleb F. But first, let's go to Susanna's question. Susanna asks, if Jesus died for our sins in the New Testament and Adam was in the Old Testament, did Adam go to heaven? Susanna, this is a wonderful question, one that a lot of people ask, because chronologically speaking, it really does seem confusing, because if the Savior who came to save us and die for our sins came at the beginning of the New Testament, then what happened to all of the people of God in the Old Testament? In other words, how could somebody be saved if they were born and lived and died before Jesus even came? Now, the example that you give is Adam, and of course, Adam is the first man. Jesus is actually referred to by the Apostle Paul as the second Adam or the last Adam. So there's a special relationship between Adam and Jesus that he talks about, for example, in Romans chapter 5. So if we take Adam as a kind of representative Old Testament person, the question is, what happened to Adam after he died? Well, here's the simple answer. People in the Old Testament were saved by the same gospel that saves people today. So There aren't two different plans of salvation, two different ways for people to be saved, but whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, there's just one way of salvation, and that's what the Apostle Paul refers to as justification by faith. In other words, we are made just, not through our righteous action, but we are made just through faith in Jesus Christ, and then His righteousness is given to us. So that's how people after Jesus were saved, but it's also how people before Jesus were saved. In fact, Paul uses a famous person who lived and died before Jesus to illustrate this point. It was Abraham. Abraham, we're told in the Old Testament, was justified by faith. And that's exactly how people are saved to this day. The question is, though, what was Abraham's faith in? Even here, the answer is the same thing that our faith is in today. Abraham had faith that God's covenant promises to him would be fulfilled. Now, he didn't understand the full revelation of what the answer to these promises was. Like, he couldn't have given you the name of Jesus, but he did understand that a promise had been made. He had confidence that God would keep that promise, 
And over time, God did keep that very promise by sending Jesus into the world. And so, Old Testament saints were saved, justified, by their faith that God would keep his promises, even though they weren't always sure about the details of those promises and what it would look like when they were kept. So they had a faith in Jesus before Jesus actually arrived on the scene, which is why their faith was wrapped up in a lot of mystery, whereas we have those mysteries explained to us in God's revelation of the New Testament. But to make a long story short, there are not two ways of salvation, just one, and it's always justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Our next question comes from Caleb F. He asks, is it okay for Christians to be addicted to coffee? Well, Caleb, this is a pointed question considering how many of us on a Sunday morning gather around the coffee pot. It is complicated whenever we ask questions about addiction because addiction is a modern term, not a biblical term. And we use the term addiction really broadly. So traditionally, addiction might have been a way to describe a compulsive behavior like drunkenness, for example. And of course, drunkenness is condemned as a sin in the Bible. So that's easy. But we talk about addiction now as apparently compulsive desires for all sorts of things. As some of those things, the Bible clearly condemns as sin, like drunkenness. Other things, though, the Bible does not condemn. Uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about coffee, for example. People often talk these days about smartphone addiction. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about smartphones. So, Generally speaking, I think we can say with confidence that it's a bad idea from a biblical standpoint to be compulsively doing anything. We don't want to be subject to and dominated by our desires. We want to have control over our flesh, over our passions. So in that sense, I think we should be suspicious of any behavior that looks compulsive or addictive whether or not the thing that we are doing is explicitly condemned in Scripture or not. Because, of course, it's possible for something that isn't in and of itself sinful to become sinful because of the way that we treat it. So, if it's possible to be addicted to coffee, I think it's probably a good idea not to be, to consume coffee as you would consume anything else in moderation. But of course, I can only explain all of this because I've already had my morning coffee. And now it's time for the big question. This week, our big question comes from Amara. She asks, why are there so many church denominations and not just one? Well, Amara, this too is a complicated question. Let's start by talking about what church denominations are. So if you're not familiar with the term denomination, you know there's different kinds of churches. There's Baptist churches, there's Methodist churches, there's Lutheran churches, there are even Presbyterian churches. 
But it's more complex than that because there are actually several different kinds of Baptists and several different kinds of Methodists and several different kinds of Lutherans and, yes, even several different kinds of Presbyterians. All these different kinds of churches are often referred to as denominations. And the question is, why do we have so many different kinds of church, so many different variations of Christianity? Shouldn't there just be one? Well, the simple explanation for why there is so much division, of course, is sin. It is human sin, our inability to get along with one another, but also the fact that sin has corrupted our intellect, that it has corrupted our ability to see the truth clearly, so that when we interpret anything, we come to disagreements over what it means. This is true in science, it's true in politics, and it's also true when it comes to the interpretation of Scripture. We don't all agree on what the Bible teaches. Now, there are some disagreements that it's possible to still maintain unity around. Right? Of course, you know this because at our church, there are people who disagree over particular interpretations or ideas in the Bible. We don't all see things the same way, and yet we are all one together in one local body of the church. So to a certain extent, it's possible to have unity despite those diversities of views. But of course, there are some differences that make unity more difficult. For example, if we disagree over what baptism is and who should be baptized when it comes time to baptize people, it would be really hard to do that two or three or four different ways, just depending on what this person or that person believed about baptism. So we can see on the one hand that these kinds of divisions are not ideal, and they're certainly not what we should aspire to. On the other hand, you can understand how these differences come about and why, in some cases, it might be more practical or pragmatic to have two separate groups of believers so that they can practice the faith as they see it, as they believe it ought to be practiced, rather than having to have that constant conflict. So, to put this another way, there's a, a tension within the church between two things, peace and purity. When we join a Presbyterian church like Grace, we take membership vows, and one of the things that we vow to do is to study the purity and the peace of the church. In other words, to focus on unity or peace rather than conflict, but also to focus on purity. In other words, to focus on truth. So if you try to do both of those things, sometimes there can be a tension because I want there to be unity and peace between us. But what if what you're believing or teaching about the Bible is actually false? Like at a certain point, I have to be able to say, no, no, the Bible doesn't say that. It says this. 
And once you do that, once you take a stand for the purity of the church, oftentimes it's difficult to maintain the peace of the church. Sometimes we try to maintain the peace of the church at the expense of the purity. So you get the idea. So unity is good, and unity is something that we should strive for, but not at all costs. We shouldn't strive for unity at the expense of the purity of the truth. It is true, I think, that denominational differences reflect practical obstacles to unity, and yet this doesn't negate the fact that we are called to be one in Christ, that there's not many different churches. There is one church, even though we find ourselves divided into various streams of Christianity. Practically speaking, the way that we should try to counteract these forces is to strive for unity wherever possible and to strive for unity across denominational lines. Now, that's the reason why, even though I'm a Presbyterian and I strongly believe in the truth and the rightness of Presbyterian interpretations of the Bible, I also try to take great pains to emphasize that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who see things differently. It's not just the Presbyterians who are saved. It's not just the Presbyterians who are right about everything. In fact, if you believe strongly in the Presbyterian view of God's sovereignty, then one thing you can be sure of is that God is at work in the larger church, and he is working in people regardless of whether their interpretation of every aspect of Scripture is correct. So, yes, it's frustrating to see that we are so divided in so many different ways, and it is something that will be repaired when Christ comes again. But in the meantime, we should strive to balance that tension. We should study the purity and the peace of the church. And now it's time for our fun questions. We've got two fun questions this week from Sam and Caleb. And once again, I want to distinguish which Sam and which Caleb I'm talking about. So this first question comes from Sam VR. He asks, did you do any sports as a kid? If so, which ones? Now, the answer to this question is probably going to surprise you because most people who know me assume that I've never done sports and am largely ignorant of sports. And to an extent, that's true. I'm definitely ignorant of sports. But the fact is that I did do a lot of sports when I was younger. In fact, in high school, on my letter jacket, I lettered in a lot of different sports uh, that's mainly because I went to a school that was so small that everybody had to be on every team just so we'd have enough people to make up a team. But as a result of that, uh, when I was younger, I was on the football team. I was on the baseball team. I was on the basketball team. I ran track, if you can believe that. And later on, I even got into fencing, not fencing, uh, building fences, but sword fighting. I enjoyed most of those things, uh, not all of them equally, 
and still have an affection for some of them to this day. I've just never been really interested in like keeping up with other sports, like watching other people do sports, uh, keeping track of scores and all of the statistics and all of that kind of thing that sports fans really love. I'm more interested in other stuff like history and literature. But if you love sports, then I encourage you to do them and to do them as well as you can. And our last question comes from Caleb, uh, Caleb J. He asks, have you ever met a famous person? Well, Caleb, you know, recently I turned 51 and that means I'm actually old enough that I've met famous people who aren't even famous anymore. They were famous in the old days and not so much now. So when I rack my brain and I try to think about uh, famous people that I met, probably the most famous person that I ever met was an actor named Peter Graves. He was the star of the original Mission Impossible. And later in his life, although earlier in mine, we met because I wrote a script for a video and directed it, and he was actually the star of that video. So I got to boss him around a little bit on the set, and that was really fun. So Peter Graves is probably the most famous person that I can remember meeting. I also met another actor uh, here in Sioux Falls not that long ago, a guy named Vinnie Jones, who had been a soccer player in England, a footballer, as they say, and then became a movie actor. And he happened to be involved in a, in a court case, a trial here in Sioux Falls. And they picked me to be on the jury. And afterwards, we all got to meet him and talk to him briefly. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, there may be other people that I'm forgetting, but those are the two that come to mind when I think about famous people that I've met. So Caleb, have you met any famous people? I'd love to know. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.